Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. There's a tweet uh, from Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, and uh, translated. It uh, reads, spoke to at Justin Trudeau, thanked for the continued powerful defense support, reiterated that the international position on sanctions must be principled after the terrorist attacks in Venetia, Mikolaev, Shazivyar, etc. The pressure must be increased, not decreased. So, the issue, of course, has to do with Canada maintaining and returning Russian gas turbines to the Kremlin via Germany. And that has uh, caused great concern to Ukraine. And the president has expressed that concern clearly to the prime minister. And uh, we're joined now by the Ukrainian ambassador to Canada, Yulia Kovalev. Ambassador Kovalev, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me today. Would you please uh, expand a little on, uh, on your president's tweet suggesting that uh, the, the sanctions, the pressure must be increased, not decreased. What is the, the broad message to this country, to this country's government, from your government? First of all, uh, I would like to remind and commemorate the memory of the victims of MH17, uh, the, uh, which died eight years ago, over 298 passengers. Uh, and victims of this horrific Russian attack that happened the eight years ago. And since that time, uh, we see not only the full-fledged Russian war against Ukraine, but also uh, on the last two weeks, uh, Russia was continuing attacking the civilian cities throughout all of the country. And uh, just for the last week, uh, there were uh, 108 civilian people including children who died from the Russian missiles they, that came uh, and they were hitting civilian buildings, residential buildings, uh, hospitals, and other places throughout the country. And we, uh, we do believe that all the world has full evidence that Russia is committing the um, terroristic attacks on, on Ukrainians throughout the country. And, uh, of course, looking at all of this, uh, we do believe that Russia needs to be punished. And first of all, by the severe sanctions. And that's why the position of Ukraine remains, uh, as declared by the president, that taking into account all this horror that Russia is doing for, for since February 24th, but also since 2014 when Russia invaded and occupied Crimea and eastern territories of Ukraine, uh, the sanction pressure needs to be increased because Russian economy, and especially these uh, sanctions in the energy sector, that need, they need to be strong enough uh, because we do know, and I think the world knows, that Russia is using the uh, money flow from export their oil and gas to, to, to the countries of the world and including mainly to European countries. Uh, to uh, finance the war in Ukraine, to finance this horror, what all Ukrainians uh, are feeling for for these months of the war, 
and particularly on these last two weeks of the horror that everybody felt. Ambassador, is it your sense that Vladimir Putin will consider the fact that Canada is releasing these turbines to Germany, which will then release them to Russia, it, is it your sense that uh, Vladimir Putin considers this to be a victory and perhaps shows some fragility as far as the sanctions are concerned? Uh, Vladimir Putin, uh, uh, well, uh, I don't know like what, what Vladimir Putin would think, but any of the steps that release the sanctions and any of the attempt to plea uh, Putin and Russian army will be used for the further steps of both attacking Ukraine, but also uh, for uh, supporting him the war. Because any of the steps that uh, that uh, back the the sanctions, back the sanction pressure, is considered uh, the another way of uh, Russian gaining another strength to to move on the war. So. We have been from the very, even before the war started, if, uh, if we call a few weeks before the war, the President Zelensky's speech on the Munich Security Con uh, Conference, where President Zelensky called for preventive sanctions on Russia, uh, unfortunately, these sanctions were not imposed. And then the war started. So we do believe that the sanctions need to be harder and uh, all our uh, partners and allies, all the democratic world would, would need to move, move forward with more severe sanctions to block the ability of Russian war machine uh, to prolong the war. Because this war, and because Russia is using many tools uh, actually to weaponize the influence of the war, not only on Ukraine, but, or, but to the other countries including the food security and including the energy security and the energy prices. Yeah, Madam Ambassador, the Canadian government, as you know, argues it is firmly supportive of Ukraine and the release of the gas turbines was done out of necessity to safeguard European allies from a natural gas shortage this coming winter. But I understand, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but there were other options to get Russia's natural gas to Germany. In fact, didn't your government offer Ukraine's facilities to transport gas from Russia to Germany? Um, yes, we do understand that uh, Russia has been uh, using energy as a weapon for many years, including the, the increasing influence uh, of uh, Russia and terror, Russia, Russian terrorism on the energy sector to, to Europe. Russia built Nord Stream 2, which has been sanctioned when the war started. Uh, and actually, Russia is already a part of all the pipes, all, all the pipelines that go directly, that deliver gas from Russia to European countries, except one. There is only one pipeline where Russia has no stake. It is the Ukrainian pipe. And Russia, for many years, was trying with their disinformation uh, to blackmail Ukrainian capacity to deliver gas to Europe. Uh, and Ukrainian pipeline, the pipeline which is owned uh, by Ukrainian government, is able to deliver the needed volumes of gas uh, from Russia to Europe. And uh, we as Ukraine are committed and are ready to provide all of the needed uh, facilities and all of the needed capacities to deliver this gas. 
and not to allow Putin another time to blackmail and to threaten with gas disruption to Europe. And that was our proposal from Ukraine to both Canada and to our European partners. You're very disappointed in Canada, I take it. Uh, I think that uh, we do believe that this uh, decision, which was named as uh, revocable, with hearing the arguments of Ukraine, uh, there still could be the the room for uh, for revocal of this waiver to supply turbines. Uh, actually, these turbines are not supplied to, to Germany because everybody understands that these turbines will end up in Russia. And allowing Russia to blackmail uh, the delivery to Europe because there is no guarantee that even if turbines will come to Russia, that Russia still will not stop supply of the gas to European countries. Yeah, that's an important point. There is no guarantee that Russia and Putin will direct natural gas to Germany or any European country even after they receive the turbines. There's no guarantee the Russians will do that. Madam Ambassador, let me ask you some uh, some other questions about what's going on in your country now. And I understand that the Russians are using, firing as many as 20,000 uh, shells and missiles at, within your country, within Ukraine, on a daily basis. How uh, how are you holding up in this, uh, this weekend? I understand it's been particularly difficult. Uh, yes, unfortunately, Russia is now uh, fully terrorizing all the Ukrainian territories. So just for the last two weeks, um, they hit the residential building in Chasivyar, uh, where 47 people died just sitting and living in their homes, um, just raising their children. And once, at one moment, uh, the missile uh, hit this building, and half of the building just fully destroyed. And for, just imagine, 47 people died at one second uh, in Vilnius. That is the city 800 kilometers from the uh, from the uh, fighting line on the on the east of Ukraine. The missile so, uh, hit a uh, very center of the city, where just the families were working, uh, the people were in the hospital in a diagnostic clinic. So, uh, as of today, 24 people died including a four-year girl uh, with the um, Down syndrome that was just on the way with her mother uh, to, a, uh, to a doctor just to teach how to talk. You imagine how many Ukrainian kids already died within this war. And Putin, with, with this attack, is trying to terrorize the country. He is trying to feed the people uh, and to, to show this fairness among Ukrainians. But it's on the contrary. The people are holding the line, the soldiers are holding and effectively using a, a broad support, uh, the broad military support uh, that came from all, all our countries and allies, including the Canada, holding the line uh, in Ukraine. But of course, uh, that is very scareful for a lot of people, especially if we look on, on the uh, perspective of September, October, when Ukrainian kids will need to go to school. And now the country is preparing to organize the educational uh, process in the way that it will be secured, in the way that each school will have a protection. 
in the way when the uh, alarm comes about the potential missile attack, the children will have a safe place to go. This is also a huge challenge uh, inside the country to all of the Ukrainians. But we are holding in line uh, and uh, with the broad support of our allies and uh, the big support of uh, Canada and Canadian governments, uh, the country, the bravery of Ukraine uh, remains in a very high level and we are going to further protect our sovereignty and our uh, territorial integrity. You're an amazing country and an amazing people. You have not... Uh... You have not shrunk from the Russian invasion, and you're you're fighting um, absolutely honorably and uh, very very much supportive of what uh, your country is doing and how you're standing up against the invasion by Putin. Let me ask you, please, about the grain harvest. Do you expect grain from Ukraine, which millions of people around the world are depending on? Do you expect grain from Ukraine will begin to move out of the Black Sea ports under an agreement, perhaps? brokered by Turkey. Is that likely? So this is another evidence of two different uh, countries with two different approaches. Since Russia is threatening and blackmailing Europe uh, with the disruption of the gas supply and gas which they have, Ukraine understanding how much other countries and how much millions of people uh, need the Ukrainian food. We are desperately trying to increase the volumes of export of Ukrainian grains to the market. So we already managed to uh, partly to uh, relocate the um, export of grains through the western border, which still is not enough. And we are ready and very open uh, to negotiate a, a secure line of the export of Ukrainian harvest uh, to the global market. So this is just to, to understand two different approaches with the terroristic country, Russia, which is blackmailing and threatening Europe, and Ukraine, which is open and trying our best uh, to, to provide more food to the global market. And, and that is also the importance to say how brave are Ukrainian farmers. They've managed to, to plant uh, about 70% of all of the territories, despite the risks of mines. Despite of the stolen grain, despite of the destroyed uh, uh, grain, uh, grain storage, uh, but uh, our farmers are working hard to get the new harvest, and not only to get them to the limited storages, which, which because of Russian attacks, uh, partly were destroyed, but also uh, Ukraine is actively taking part in the negotiations, uh, which take part took part last week in. Uh, in Turkey to find the secure way to deliver this grain to, uh, to the global market. Because we do understand how much the countries, over 40 million of people around the world, uh, need Ukrainian or grain, and how much the affordable food for them is essential to, uh, to keep on their life. Yeah. Um, just to conclude, Ambassador, your country and your president, Mr. Zelensky, in communications with Mr. Trudeau, our prime minister earlier today, we don't know exactly what the exchange was. We haven't found out yet. But we have seen a tweet from uh, your president in which he calls for increased sanctions, not uh, decreasing the sanctions, not providing any opportunity for Putin to send some, some kind of victory. And your message to the Canadian government again, Ambassador, is what? So the, uh, the, there are the, still the areas 
project where we uh, are this in discussion with all our partners and allies in terms of the increase of the sanction pressure. First of all, it's coming to the banking sector because we do think that all of the Russian banks need to be switched from, from the SWIFT. There is another important thing, which is, uh, which is to minimize and actually to cut any energy uh, import from uh, Russian oil and gas, uh, especially to Europe. We do understand how much Europeans, uh, some European countries were um, uh, using uh, Russian gas and independency was created for many, many years before. And there is a big challenge for them to do it in a quicker way. But as it comes to, for example, to the turbine issue, we as Ukraine are ready to provide alternatives. And we, are, we do care about the energy security of our partners as well. That's why even, for example, of this uh, turbine, we propose the alternative, understanding how uh, understanding the issues in terms of the energy supply of our partners are. The story from British Columbia with the B.C. Court of Appeal deciding that even though British Columbians charter rights, the life and security of the person are being infringed on by wait lists for diagnostic or surgical benchmarks for health conditions, which may be life-threatening, and thereby exposing these patients to premature death, British Columbians are nevertheless not permitted to purchase private insurance to cover medical services by healthcare professionals who would bill above the public health rate. Uh, joining us is Dr. Brian Day. He's the founder of Camby Clinics in uh, in uh, Camby Surgeries in British Columbia. Dr. Day, good to talk to you again. It's been a long time. I, I, I guess in a way I expected a different decision from the court. Did you? Um, well, we hoped for it, but and, and we're disappointed, but you know, they did identify errors um, in the trial judge, and and one of the things they came up with was um, was that the people people's life is being threatened uh, within this health system. But they they the, the, they made the very strange um, interpretation that it's worthwhile to let people suffer and die on wait lists because of the the that they think. There, there might be a better, a greater good for society as a whole, and of course, countries around the world and show that that's not the case. Canada is the only country in in on the planet where it's unlawful to have a, a non-government option when you're on a, a when you have a, a dangerous medical condition that might kill you. Yeah, and it's not even all of Canada. British uh, Quebec has for 17 years now had a provision that's applicable only to Quebec from the Supreme Court of this country, which allows what you wanted in B.C. essentially to be facted in Quebec, correct? Yes. I mean, basically what we um, have argued for is that, uh, and that is that all Canadians deserve the protection and should have the same rights under the Charter that the highest Canadian court, the Supreme Court of Canada, gave to Quebecers in 2005. And, and if this decision stands as is we really do have a two-tier system in canada one one for quebecers and another for the for the rest of us is this case now undoubtedly and you've been at this for years 
Is this case undoubtedly going to the Supreme Court of Canada, and do you believe that it will then extend beyond British Columbia, or are we going to be looking at a potentially province-by-province reality as healthcare in this country uh, suffers? We just spoke with the president of the Canadian Medical Association, and, uh, and, and no doubt in uh, Dr. Catherine Smart's mind, that our, our health care, our public health care, is in a catastrophic situation. So is it going to the Supreme Court and you expect it to be province by province? Well, I, I don't think it will be province by province. I think that if we don't go to the Supreme Court and we haven't made a decision yet, um, the system in any case is going to implode because, I mean, just in last year, 11,500 Canadian patients died on public wait lists and they are denied by law uh, anyway off that wait list. And, that, um, and, and you know, in our seven, 76% of the population across the country, and it's higher in Alberta and BC and Quebec, um, 76% overall wanted us to win this lawsuit. So the, this is a, a strange form of democracy that we are participating in. And, and you, know, you know, as a... As a Former law dean um, from the Osgoode Hall, Patrick Monaghan, wrote a few years ago. He's now a Superior Court judge in Ontario. And as a democratic society, can, can it, it must be wrong, wrong and immoral to cause innocent people to die in, in order to justify a system that you believe, without evidence, is, is improving the welfare of others. It, it, you can't kill innocent people in a, in a, in a free and democratic society. That, but that's, you know, that's not going to happen. We know from countries like England, and it was actually evidence in, in, the, tri- in the trial, that actually having a, an option um, improves the public system. Yeah. In layman's terminology... For people across the country now who are really deeply interested in this, because hundreds of thousands of surgeries have been postponed in Canada, we know that. People are not getting their diagnostic tests, even for deadly uh, illnesses like cancer. In layman's terminology, what would your objective have accomplished? What would the potential scenarios have been? It would be to eliminate this system of ours. We have 14 health systems. So, So, for instance, Next Thursday, I'll be operating on patients from Alberta in, in Vancouver, but they're not allowed to have the same surgery in Alberta. So we don't have a health system in Canada. We have 14 health systems, and that's where the money goes. The money's going into these massive bureaucracies, you know, 14 ministers of health and the deputy ministers and associate deputies and assistant deputies are not going to give up their, their jobs and jurisdictions. We have patients suffering and dying on wait lists. That, that that even this this court has accepted that patients are dying, and they just said it it's to maintain this system, which on the one hand is rated the lowest of developed countries for ac- for access in lower income groups that the so the poor and the underprivileged suffer more in Canada than the wealthy that that we're the most inequitable system of all those. Um, of, of other, uh, compared to 10 countries that have universal health care. And, and you, you know, one of the problems we face is, is politicians should be addressing this, and, and uh, they haven't. The judges should be addressing it, and they haven't. And you do need to understand, I mean, it's, it's, it's time for the people to rise up and say, 
that 76%, and as I said, it's 80% in BC and Alberta, need to voice their opinions to their politicians and say, look, if the courts are afraid of this, we don't want you to be afraid of it. After all, we're asking for a system like socialist countries like Sweden and Denmark and Belgium and England have. We're not asking for an American-style quote system. Uh, We we want um, a little bit of competition. We want we want a patient who is at risk of dying to have a way out of that dilemma and, and to have a, over 11,500 Canadians dying on public wait lists in a free and democratic society with no recourse, to me, is just morally, ethically, and legally wrong. Yet the British Columbia government is happy at the decision by the court, as you well know. I've also received emails from listeners who have concerns that any change to the public system would mean there would be a two-tier healthcare system if you don't have the economic means to purchase insurance, you're out of luck. Well, well, the answer to that is, do you really think wealthy people suffer? Think of the United States. And not, and even, I mean, the people, the patients I'm operating on next week from Alberta, they're not wealthy. They, they, are, they are choosing to not go on vacation so they can get, get back to work or, or get back active again. This is not about wealth. This is the, the, the and seven, you know, the other point being, we don't consider, consider the fact that 70% of the public already have private insurance for the things that the government refuses to cover. Things like prescription drugs and ambulances and physiotherapy and dentistry, which in other countries like England and New Zealand and Sweden are covered in the public plan. We have a bad plan. It's the most expensive now, according to the Canadian Institute for Health Information, 12.7% of our GDP on healthcare. The only more expensive system in the world is the U.S. And, of course, they don't have a public system. So we have the most expensive system of all countries that have universal healthcare, and we are the worst performer. Okay. Well, it sounds in a way... We just have a few seconds, but it sounds as though the British Columbia Court has paved the way for the Supreme Court to make a decision similar to, to the one that it made. Uh, you know, everybody, this is this is such a political thing. They, the, the, um, they, they. I don't think judges are confident enough to make these decisions because they they perceive it as being such a big picture and i don't think politicians are therefore the people have to rise up i think and 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 say we can't trouble is until it affects you or your family you're not maybe aware of this so the final round is underway at st andrews in scotland today but without tiger woods two times he won there didn't make the cut as you know hugely emotional outpouring of fan support and standing ovation by thousands as Tiger walked uh, the 18th fairway, clearly in tears. And the question is, will he continue? Lauren Rubenstein joins us, author with Tiger Woods of Unprecedented, The Masters and Me, and the 1997 Masters, My Story. Lauren is a member of the Ontario and Canadian Halls Golf Halls of Fame and the author of 16 books and played in the British Amateur Championships himself. Lauren, thanks for coming on. You know Tiger better than most people. When you, uh, when you saw him on the... Uh, 18th fairway on friday did you get a sense that this is it not really no i mean you know he's got uh, an indomitable will and uh 
He did not stop on the Swilkenburn Bridge coming across, which is traditional for players who are playing their last uh, open, making it their sort of swan song. If he would have stopped, that would have been a signal he's saying goodbye. But he just kept marching on, and uh, he later said he doesn't know if he'll be able to play another open at uh, St. Andrews because it won't be around, who knows what, six, seven, eight years. Uh, then he'll be getting into his mid-50s. But uh, he, he, I think you'll see him next year at the uh, British Open at the Open at Hoy Lake Royal Liverpool, where he won in 2006. So, no, I didn't get the sense at all that it's over for him. Well, I'm really glad to hear that because I do want to see him play again, and I do want to see 2019 uh, the Masters repeat itself. And I would like to, to see him at least tie Jack Nicklaus, if not, if not pass him. It, do you think he – does he really feel – you know him well. You've you know your, your book about the '97 Masters with him. My story. Does he do, does he really believe still today that he can go out there on any given weekend or four day period and own a major? Mm, not any given. You know, it, he knows that's unrealistic. You know, he plays very little, and uh, he really only played the major championships this year, three of them, and uh, he knows that it's got to be on the right side of the right kind of golf course. He felt that this week the old course in St. Andrews would be his best opportunity. First of all, he loves the place, and he's won twice there by eight and five shots, and it's a flat course, so it's much more easily walkable for a guy with um, kind of a such a severely damaged right leg. Um, so uh, does he believe? I don't think he'd be playing if he didn't believe with his best golf that he could contend. Uh, and I think when that day comes, you won't see him at all. But uh, I think he's getting more realistic and uh, just appreciating the fact that he still has a leg and he loves to yeah. compete. So he wants to go out there. And I guess, you know, given what he's done in the game, it's up to him to make a decision uh, as to when he'll just back it in. I was shocked when I heard uh, one of the commentators say, um, we know that his leg was terribly badly injured, but this calf is is attached to his shin bone i can't even imagine most people walking let alone well, uh, you know playing you know, for 10 I mean, bucks i'd like to know the source of that you know where did he get that from that commentator we know that tiger takes ice baths every day uh, with his leg just to bring the inflammation down you know we don't have any idea really of the degree to which he goes to to make it possible for even him to, for him to walk the golf course and uh, and, and compete in a tournament because he doesn't really inform people he doesn't let you in on that he does say that it's he say he goes ahead and says people don't know how tough it is for me to be out here well we don't know because he doesn't tell us but uh as far as uh, what you just referenced i don't know i mean i have no idea if that's true or not it may be but i i wish that commentator had said where he heard that from yeah me too but it really stopped me in my tracks yeah, i'm sure yeah yeah, Lauren, is there a memorable moment? I'm sure there's many, but is there a, a memorable moment you can share with us in your relationship with Tiger as you were writing the books with him? Was there some some moment that spoke to Tiger that you could share with us? Uh, just sitting in his, in his um, you know, kind of one of his boardrooms there in his office down there in Jupiter, Florida, watching video of the 97 Masters and having him getting, you could see him replaying the shots and going over them, and you could see the excitement in his voice still, you know, more than 20 years later, or 20 years later at the time, uh, of 
playing different shots and competing. And uh, that's why now, even, you know, five years later, you still feel that, uh, you know, that's what he wants to do. That's really what he wants to do. And that's what I sensed. I used the word Bill uh, uh, Will at the beginning of our little chat here, Roy. And uh, his will is just for him to even be out there playing with, uh, as he says, he was lucky to, to keep his leg. Never mind be out there competing. But yet that's what he's doing here. So he's still in the game somehow by a thread. But he's still in the game. I was uh, talking to a friend about him, and I, and I said, he reminds me at this point in his career of Muhammad Ali, and I'll, I'll tell you why in a second. When, when Ali was at the end of the career, and he wasn't doing that well, and he was losing to people, fighters he never would have lost to before, and a reporter said to him, Ali, why do you do this? Why are you still fighting? You're getting beaten. Uh, why are you why are you still in the ring and his answer was very simple and very eloquent it's what i do man yeah i would say that's true for tiger as well these phenomenal athletes just keep going and going and going and you know it's hard for them to know when to just pack it in it's hard to go out on top really um this might have been the week for tiger to do it but he chose not to and uh, we'll have to see down the road when he says it's the end but i think that's a very you know that's an authentic comment from Ali. It's what I do, and it is what Tiger does, too. And after he recovers from this week, he'll start pointing towards the Masters probably in 2023 and trying to get ready for that because it's what he does. It's well put. Yeah, it's what I do, man. Um, yeah, I, uh, how good, look, compare, and you've worked with and talked to and written books with some of the greatest. You were a good friend of Mo Norman's. You wrote that fantastic book, Mo and Me. I still have that. I go back and read it periodically because it's, it's really inspiring. Uh, how, how good was he? Tell me in 30 seconds, Lauren, how good was Tiger really when he was at his best and playing against the rest of the world's best? Uh, he was so far and away the best. Nobody could really come close to him when he was at his best. When he was ba at his best and others were at their best, Tiger was still going to go ahead and win because he just had that. First of all, the sound of the ball off the face of the club, whether it was an iron or a driver, he was a phenomenal putter as well. And uh, he just, you know, he, he very rarely gave up a tournament. It's hard to think of any that he did. And he won by such astronomical margins. You know, the 2000 U.S. Open by 15 shots, those two uh, Open Championships in St. Andrews by eight and five shots. Um, it's just, he just overwhelmed everybody else. And uh, as Colin Montgomery said recently, Tiger was just better than me. That's all it was, you know, and whatever... Um, ingredients go into that tiger had it you know he didn't make yeah. mistakes he plotted himself around the golf course better than anybody uh, and it was you know i felt when i was watching him i was watching a genius of the game at work and it was really fun to see that you know yeah, you were seeing uh, a master at, at work and he was that much better than everybody else when he was at his best now the former head of energy supply and security for france is with us professor jerry bro professor at Sciences Po in Paris, leading expert on markets, the geopolitics of oil and gas, and energy security. And again, he was uh, with the French Energy Ministry in charge of security of supply. Now, professor Poe is also a contributor, regular contributor to National Natural Gas World website. Now, also, we heard the other day that France is preparing for zero natural gas from Russia, so it's a difficult time in uh, in Europe. And Professor Bro told us a few weeks ago on this program that he won't be surprised if there are blackouts in Europe this winter. 
Uh, Thierry, thank you very much for joining us. You were listening to Ambassador Kovalev. What did you get up from the interview? Yes, good afternoon, Roy. Thank you for having me. Uh, what I did get is I'm a bit sad because I think that uh, uh, East Western countries, I mean, the G7, uh, should stick to uh, values and principles. And I'm not so sure that we are sticking to values and principles today. Uh, and uh, as the ambassador stated, I don't think it's only about gas. It's much more about value and principle. Uh, returning the turbine to uh, Russia via Germany may not lead to more gas. And I can elaborate a bit more on this. But uh, I think uh, uh, today Vladimir Putin as the Kremlin is uh, very happy because he has proven again that we can be disunited. And this is where we are weak. And this is what he wants, clearly. So would you expand then a little bit for us on why this won't necessarily lead, this move by Trudeau won't necessarily lead to Russia providing Germany or the rest of Europe with more natural gas? Yes, I think the way we have to look at it is that gas from Russia is playing the uncertainty principle, i.e. they are throwing requests at us each day and we have to cope with this request. And the outcome of the request doesn't guarantee anything. I'm going to give you two examples. One, uh, a few months ago, we were asked to pay in ruble, which is outside the contract. And we, state, we said yes at the end of the day. And then a few weeks after, it did cut the flow via Nord Stream 1 by 60%. I think that if we had said no, uh, we would have been much stronger and it wouldn't have cut the flows. And, and again, uh, is it going to increase the flow? Maybe not. And we've seen uh, today and the year day before a uh, press release from Gazprom saying we don't know when the turbine is going to come back to Russia. We don't know if Siemens is going to uh, service the turbine forever, etc., etc. So at the end of the day, there is a grand scheme in, in, in Moscow. I don't know when he wants to cut gas. I don't expect it to cut it now, but I think he will try to weaponize gas as long as possible, and he's going to be stronger in winter. And he feels, clearly, I would imagine, that uh, this is a victory for him to have the Canadian government, to have Mr. Trudeau, send those turbines to uh, to Russia via Germany. I mean, we can say all we want that it's going via Germany. It's just a detour. It's going to Putin. Absolutely. And, and again, uh, you could also think that Germany has other ways to do this. I mean, first of all, remember that Germany has closed some nuclear plants uh, at the uh, end of last year and wants to close its remaining nuclear plants at the end of this year. I mean, we should first perhaps ask Germany to look uh, after itself and to try to provide its own electricity via nuclear, first element. Secondly, uh, as the ambassador was saying, I mean, there are ways to ship more gas to Ukraine. And neither Germany nor Russia have alluded to this uh, uh, option. And, and I think it will have been a very simple way for Germany to book extra capacity via Ukraine to pay for this. So this will have been uh, needed money in Ukraine and to say to the Russians, well, sorry, uh, we are now having this booked capacity in Ukraine. So please ship the gas that you owe us via Ukraine. And this will have solved the problem. But again, instead, we are weak and disunited. I'm sad. Yeah.
Yeah. So there are options. Let's say it again. Ukraine's uh, delivery system for gas was available, as the ambassador pointed out, and could have been used to move the Russian natural gas to the European nations that require it, including Germany, which Mr. Trudeau claims to be so concerned about. So Mr. Trudeau might have been able to uh, remember that, or his advisors might have advised him of the fact that there were options other than to returning the, uh, the turbines to, uh, to Putin. Absolutely. And uh, I stick to what the ambassador stated. She is absolutely right. And uh, again, uh, returning the turbine will not mean more gas, I, I, I suspect. I think what Vladimir Putin is right now doing is shipping us the exact minimum amount of gas we need in Europe to power our economy, but not enough to fill up storage. And this is where he's very strong. And, so, and this is where Germany is extremely stressed, because if he cuts further, then some German economy some German manufacturing will need to close down. And this is why they are so stressed. But I think they also need to do a little bit of their home homework, find ways to produce their own energy, and also to try to uh, find solidarity inside Europe. Yeah, as I understand, they have nine, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe they have nine nuclear plants. They've closed down eight of them, and their plan is to close down the last one and, and then say, well, we need those turbines in order to, for, for Putin to provide us uh, with, with, the, with the natural gas. Do the, am I right about those numbers? Yes, I mean, the, the, it, those, those are absolutely right, and this is why I'm, I was stating to you, I mean, we should have asked Germany, and I think it's now coming uh, from the European Union, uh, stop uh, closing nuclear plants, because this is going to be completely insane in the worst ever energy crisis that we've engineered ourselves, you making it even worse, and uh, you showing some uh, disunity vis-à-vis uh, -vis Russia. Cherry, do you have concerns that this is the first domino of the weakening of the sanctions is it now going to be easier for any country, potentially including this one, to compromise the sanctions? Yes, I think, Roy. I mean, that's why I, was, I started with uh, value and principle. I think if we don't stick to value and principle, then we are on a very slippery uh, area. And we then may be able to change uh, our own laws, which is not what uh, Ukraine was expecting from us. What about the other uh, European countries? I mean, Germany has been accused of having too close a relationship or having had too close a relationship with Russia for many, many years. Um, but what about the other European nations? Are they? Uh, what's the response from them to what's going on now and the clear dissatisfaction with Canada from Ukraine? Well, I think if you're looking at Poland or the Baltics, uh, they were aware of this risk and uh, they, they are able to cope without Russian gas any longer. So they've done their homework and so they are much more resilient. Uh, I think Germany is a bit of a, of a very special case because they are very dependent on Russia. And also what people are not knowing, they get their gas for cheaper under market price. And so this is why the German economy is uh, hooked, if I can say through this cheap Russian gas. And so this is why they, they, in fact, have very little option, because any other option will be more expensive, and maybe the German economy isn't going to flourish as it used to in the old days when they were getting cheap Russian gas. And this is where I think Germany needs to think about its uh, uh, energy uh, history and also its uh, model, economical yeah. model. You're one of the leading experts in the world 
on geopolitics, on markets, oil and gas, and energy security. This country, Canada, was a few years ago expected to become, if not the number one nation, certainly one of the top two or three nations of the world, providing the rest of the world with the natural gas and the oil that's still required. And here we are sitting on the sidelines with no infrastructure to help our European allies. Mr. Trudeau claims to be concerned, is so concerned about. We dropped the ball here as well. Yes, that's the irony of the story. I mean, you're returning... (laughs) turbines to Russia to produce more gas, perhaps, while you could have produced it yourself. Yeah, in, in huge quantities. Uh, how does this all, uh, final question for you, Thierry, how does this all, how does this all end? Well, it's going to end with a massive recession in Europe, as I stated. I mean, if Vladimir Putin cut all uh, Russian gas to Europe, half of the industry in Europe will have to close down. And this means that uh, Germany isn't going to produce as much uh, a car that it used to. And, and this is what I think we will face. Not today. I don't think he will do this today. But he will do this in uh, the coming months and perhaps more likely in winter versus summer. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.